disidentifying from thought. So first of all, why is this even a pursuit um, that one would consider? And the simple answer is to lessen our suffering. Um, the Buddha taught, the Buddha said, I teach only two things, that suffering exists and that the end of suffering is possible. And one of the main strategies that he had to help us humans lessen our suffering was to come into present moment awareness, which as you know from experience, is a different function than the storytelling mind, uh, the mind of self-talk. And that being aware, living in the present moment, awake and aware to the present moment, um, can really reveal how much our lives, our inner lives, but even our behavior, everything, is impacted by our thoughts. And that can be a good thing if, if the thoughts are guiding us wisely. But so often, the conditioning that we've received in a confused culture hasn't been so wise. And even with wise, you know, even when we've been fortunate enough to get some wise and caring uh, interactions in our lives, there's a lot that we inherit from our ancestors that doesn't actually serve well-being and that brings us more distress. It can be really interesting to be in a moment of mindfulness and see that, you know, as we come out of a, a disturbing thought, we can see how the actual moment that we're in experientially is neutral or sometimes even pleasant. You know, like you might just be lying in bed and what's actually happening is you're lying in bed. In that moment, you're physically safe. It's quiet, warm, comfortably dark, cozy. And that's all that's happening in terms of the lived moment. But it's become a suffering moment because of what the mind has been doing. This is a quote from Ajahn Amaro, a, a senior teacher in the tradition of the Thai forest monks, um, Ajahn Chah, one of Jack Kornfield's primary teachers. Ajahn Amaro, the Buddha described how he divided his thoughts into two different categories. On the one hand, wholesome thoughts which lead to happiness and peacefulness, and on the other, those that lead to harm or confusion or stress. So when we can disidentify from thoughts, no longer take them personally, but begin to see them and look at them from an observing stance, which is what we'll be talking about tonight, we can discern. We don't have to, we don't have to feel obligated to believe everything just because it's been thought by the mind. We can discern, oh, this thought, you know, of patience or generosity or appreciation is supporting inner peace. And this thought of resentment or self-blame or worry is contracting the body and creating stress and suffering. We can see it and name it and, and begin to discern. There's some wholesome thoughts that serve um, well-being and then these uh, types of thoughts that actually are causing harm or stress. German spiritual teacher Eckhart Tolle speaks a lot about this and it's wonderful if you if you like him and you have time there's lots of stuff on YouTube with him talking about how, you know how thoughts inhabit us and 
how unhooking from them and disidentifying from them is the is a very essential and the first really deep spiritual awakening that he had. And this is a short quote from him. What's happened through the gradual evolution of thinking is that now humans tend to overthink. There's a lot of not only unnecessary thinking, but also unnecessary thinking that in many cases creates non-existent problems, such as when you lie awake at night in bed and start worrying, generates a lot of unnecessary unhappiness. People don't realize that a significant part of the unhappiness in their lives is actually generated by unnecessary, negative, often destructive mind activity, and they don't even know it. So what are these thoughts? The Buddha noticed that they exist and found some really profound ways to work with them. That was 2,600 years ago. Scientists have been working on it. Um, they began working on understanding the brain and the languaging brain in the 1860s in Germany and France. Um, but really, almost all of the, of the really flourishing information about what thoughts are and where they are and what's happening there, a lot of it's still totally unknown. But what is known has mostly only been discovered in the last 20 years. And some, some of the information, when I was researching for this talk, I was reading essays by scientists that were published like in July of 2022. Like it's really happening now. We're really learning. So I just want to share a little bit because I think it's really, really helpful in terms of this goal of disidentifying from thoughts. It can be really helpful to just see our own brains from an objective, as, as, as objective as possible perspective, the perspective of science. So I want to share just a little bit about this that I learned. So what are thoughts? So they form, they begin to form when neurons signal other cells via neurotransmitters. So they do that with chemicals and with electric impulses. And it happens really fast and it happens all over the brain. It's a, a, the languaging network is a network that involves all different parts of the brain. It's associative, so you might see something and it might, like you see a book and then it triggers a thought of maybe it's something you want to read about and the next thing you know you find yourself, you know, online ordering a book. It, it makes associations. It's creative. Um, it also is repetitive, which you are aware of if you've had, um, you know, if you've been watching your thoughts um, I was, some of you know, I sat, uh, in February, I sat a month long retreat at Spirit Rock. James Bears was one of the teachers there. And, um, as I was watching my thoughts, I saw, you know, there were certain sort of what they call top 10 tunes. And I remember noticing the repetitive nature of the thoughts about my mom, who she's elderly and, um, you know, declining and my mind just wanted to go visit mom. <laughs> you know, so it'd be just like, oh, there's mom thoughts, mom thoughts, mom thoughts. So, so they, they, they're repetitive, they're electrical, and they're not personal. They're conditioned. There are seven major networks in the brain and there's the sensory motor network which is movement touch and hearing there's the visual network huge amount of brain space for us to see process what we see there's the limbic brain which regulates reactions and emotions there's 
the central executive network, which is involved with tasks and decision making. There's the default mode network, which is referred to as the internal mind. That's where we go. I'll come back to that in a minute. That's where we go when we have wandering mind, the default mode network. That's five. The sixth one is the salience network, which is this really cool network that just decides where to send brain electricity. It just decides what's necessary. It like will move your brain from the default mode network into the exec central executive network, which is what it's doing when it's bringing you back from wandering mind to present moment awareness when we meditate. So the salience network is the sixth one. And then the seventh one is called the dorsal attention network. And it's a whole, it again, takes up a lot of brain space and its whole job is about paying attention. So when we're practicing mindfulness, we're moving out of the default mode network. The default mode network, the internal mind, it's the ruminating mind, the contemplating mind, the imagining mind, and it happens automatically. You know, you might think I'm thinking, you know, like, like you're driving, the mind wanders and you go like, oh yeah, you know, I was thinking about that movie I saw a couple nights ago. But it wasn't really you thinking. It was the default mode network kind of churning out its stuff. And then, and, then, and then when the salience network brings you back into the executive network, you catch some of that and notice what was going on. So all this is happening at lightning speed. And if any of you are actual neuroscience, you'll, you'll see I've, I've, you know, <laughs> crazily simplified um, but but those that's what's you know those are the seven basic networks of the brain and what what's happening with thinking with language is all over the brain and uses all of them in all different ways but for our purposes it's really helpful to know about the central executive network which is you know when we're focused on a task like following the sensations of breathing or just or continuity of mindfulness noticing what's going on right now in this moment for instance and the dorsal attention network which is the network that allows us to pay attention and know what's happening and what the buddha discovered as i mentioned is that when we bring and we can the salience network allows us to do that when we deliberately bring our energy away from the default mode network and into the central executive network <sighs> we're freed from any habitual negative thinking in that moment even if it's just half a breath we're freed we've lifted some of the suffering and so anytime you're practicing like we did tonight you're doing something fantastic because each mindful breath deepens the habit of future mindful breaths, more mindful breaths, more continuity of mindful breaths or mindful experience. And we're not enslaved by the activity of the default mode network, which will go anywhere like i said the way that neurons work they just they, they make associations and they fire off and boop, 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 and before you know it you're remembering some awful thing that happened when you were 16 and feeling all the yucky feelings again but what's actually happening is thoughts are just mental activity in your brain and what we can do even when we've been hooked and we've been down and and you know we've been kind of entranced by the stories and feeling like it's who we are and stuff. Anytime we bring in mindful awareness, we're moving back into observer and naming, oh, there's thinking. You're no longer, instead of being the thinking, you're seeing the thinking.
And there's a lot of peace and power both in that seeing the thinking rather than being the thinking. This is a quote from Jack Kornfield. Our life is shaped and determined by our thoughts. Usually, we're only half conscious of the way thoughts direct our life. We're lost in thoughts as if they're reality. We take our own mental creations quite seriously, endorsing them without reservation. And again, this isn't all bad, you know, lots of beauty, lots of creativity, lots of wisdom can come out of your mind. It just becomes a problem when we're endorsing and taking quite seriously the thoughts that are hurting us or others. There's a psychologist named Dr. Elaine Ryan who, who um, her whole like life's work is helping people deal with intrusive thoughts, which is a big thing for lots of people. We all have them. It just becomes a problem when we identify with them, become oppressed and hurt by them. And she has a website called Moodsmith, which is quite wonderful if this kind of stuff interests you. And, um, and this is a quote from that website. Thoughts are powerful things. They can make you happy, sad, or anxious, or keep you stuck in a repetitive, obsessive spiral. They can affect your health, emotional well-being, and overall outlook on life. It's crucial then to take some time to understand thoughts. The way you think about things affects how you feel and behave. If you have, a po if you have positive, helpful thoughts, you'll feel better and more likely to do something that helps you. On the other hand, if you have negative, harmful thoughts, you'll feel worse and be more likely to do things that negatively impact your life. For example, if you want to change jobs and see an opening in a firm you wish to work in, if you think that you're capable of getting the job and have the necessary qualifications, you'll apply for the job and are in with a chance of securing the position. However, if you think other people will be better, there's no such point in a, there's no point in applying, even though you have the required qualifications and experience, you're less likely to apply for the job and as such have zero chance of getting a new job. The only difference between these two examples is the thoughts in the person's head. The seemingly harmless thought not only has the power to affect how you feel, but consequences in the real world. Thoughts occur in your brain and are necessary and helpful in most instances to help you navigate, learn, and progress through life. According to cognitive science, thoughts are mental representations of information that help you make sense of the world. The thought not only represents something, but has the power to make changes in your body. For example, you can think about food, and while you're having the thought, your mouth might produce saliva. Why? Because the thought represents the food you've previously eaten and your body prepares to eat and digest it by producing saliva. The science of how thoughts work is a relatively new field, but a wealth of research shows that our thoughts have a profound impact on our lives. Thoughts influence our emotions, behavior, and physical health. This is why learning about thoughts is essential. Okay, that's a little bit about the why and the how, I mean the why and the what about thoughts. And so, and so to our point, to our, to our intention for tonight, disidentifying from them. So how do we do that? So there's a lot of different ways and, and a lot of brilliant, brilliant people have created all kinds of different ways um, and we are going to mostly focus on strategies that were discovered by the Buddha because they are still stellar. They will always be stellar because the Buddha stumbled into, I don't, I don't know if stumbled is the right word, found skillfully <laughs> his way into these different parts of the brain and, and what what really serves us. 
he had when he um so you know he was a prince he he lived in in as much privilege as as one could and chose to leave that in order to discover how to help beings be free of suffering and his first teacher taught him about concentration which concentration is one way to work with thoughts because when we're concentrated meditatively concentrated but even other kinds of concentration for those moments of concentration thoughts can be banished that can happen and people have amazing experiences with concentration and that's what the buddha learned when he was a siddhartha when he was just still a prince on trying to figure things out a renunciate he learned some really deep forms of concentration and experienced some really deep bliss but what he saw was when he came out of the concentration the mind was as kooky as ever you know greed and resentment and self-blame and uh, you know all the kind of yuck was still there concentration could give you a break but it didn't really free you that was his first teacher so then he went to his second teacher who taught him one more he'd already learned seven like levels of concentration second teacher brought him to the eighth level which is like really a profound transformative experience and yet not not um complete freedom from suffering so that's when the buddha left his renunciate life and and just sat underneath the bodhi tree and said i i need to I need to know how, if there is a way for a human being to know what could reduce suffering. I, I really want to know. And then the story goes that he fought. Then his mind like did what our minds do, human minds do. It like produced all kinds of yucky stuff, which in the Buddhist lore is, is uh, embodied in the figure of Mara, the... Um, this kind of energy of greed and hatred and delusion and so he saw his mind do it all the greed the craving the lust the addiction the hate the violence you know the delusion this the the doubt the sleepiness it did it it did its thing and how he met that was he had this power of concentration, but he also remembered when he was a little boy sitting underneath an apple, a cherry apple tree, and just sort of spontaneously was deeply inhabiting the present moment, was just there in the present moment. He remembered that. And in fact, in Pali, the word for mindfulness, sati, it literally translate translates as remember remember this is it this is it this is always it this is the moment this is it the moment we're alive so he had that experience as a little boy he remembered that he used that which was very uh supported by his deep concentrative skills he could use it he could access it and not immediately wander away because he had the power of concentration so he was able to use his mindfulness and stay and in that way and finally when the mara energy was just like way too much he put his hand on the earth and said to the earth I deserve to be here. I deserve to know what is true, what is true. How do we free ourselves from suffering? And with that support of the earth, he had his realizations and then went on to teach for 45 years. And what did he realize? A lot of things, but one of the key things was move move your deliberately consciously move your energy into the part of the mind that knows awareness and then from that place regard your experience including what your thoughts are doing and then he went on you know there's more than that 
There's a skillful response. Conditioning is going to do what it's going to do. The mind is going to spew out what it spews out. They say that the mind thinks just in the same way that the mouth produces saliva. It's going to do what it's going to do. It has its conditioning. It will produce stuff. Some of it's useful and helpful. Some of it isn't. When it isn't, then there are other strategies like loving kindness, compassion, patience, forgiveness. But tonight we're really focusing on this capacity to see because it's fundamental and it can be transformative just in itself. This is a poem called Tilicho Lake by David White. In this high place, it is as simple as this. Leave everything you know behind. Step toward the cold surface. Say the old prayer of rough love and open both arms. Those who come with empty hands will stare into the lake astonished. There in the cold light reflecting pure snow the true shape of your own face. As we move more into this place of awareness, cultivating it with the effort that we put in, we do, we show up, we put in effort. There could be thoughts in the mind like, this is so damn boring. I got so many other things to do, but we show up anyway. And with that effort, we have cultivated this capacity to be in awareness and we can clearly see thoughts are happening on their own accord based on our conditioning and they are not who we are. That's a wonderful thing to see. And it's really mindfulness that allows us to see that. Because otherwise we're in the default mode network. We are being the thoughts rather than seeing the thoughts. We're identified with them and they are kukaluka a lot of the time. That's just how minds are. Jack Cornfield again. We must understand the power of the stories we tell and differentiate them from the direct experience of life. In this way, we can use thoughts without being trapped in them, use thoughts without being trapped in them. The story we tell ourselves seduces us. It pulls us into a narrative, which might not even be all that accurate, and pulls us away from the sensory experience of the present moment. So, Mindfulness practice, any practice that you have, you know, staying dedicated to it, cultivating it, deepening it. A daily practice is really great. Just coming back to the breath, the body hearing, you know, some anchor. What you're doing is you're training. They talk, talk about Buddhist practice as a mind training, and it really is. We're training our minds, our brains, to relocate activity into a different place where we're seeing rather than being. And every time you practice mindfulness, you're doing that training and you get stronger and stronger at it. If you do a daily practice, you bring mindful awareness into things like uh, washing dishes, opening doors, taking showers, patting your dog, any mindful moment strengthens the mind's capacity to do that. What we shouldn't expect, and it just hurts us to expect from mindfulness practice, is that thoughts will go away. They don't go away, and we, you know, ultimately we need them. They don't go away. Minds are always on. You can't turn them off. You know, sometimes they quiet or still if we have the right causes and conditions for, con for concentration, but then it will come back. So 
let go of any expectations around thoughts going away. Well, what you can train yourself to do and learn to request of your mind is to notice thoughts in a similar way that you notice sounds. They come and they go, and you don't have to take them personally. Another thing about thoughts is just because you can think it does not mean it's true. There's a lot that we think that um, isn't true and if we turn a mindfulness on it then we can ask that question do I, is this really true it can feel real Tara Brock will say real but not true it's a real thought in the mind it has a real uh, effect on emotions but is it true even bringing in that inquiry can kind of can lessen its grip on us when thoughts are really going fast and furious that can be really challenging when you're sitting down to meditate and the thoughts are so they're just relentless and they won't they won't mellow out at all um, it can be helpful to think of thoughts like a waterfall you cannot turn the waterfall off but what you can do with a waterfall, if you're standing right under it, getting some very hefty impact from the waterfall, you can step back. The waterfall's still going, but you're over here watching and naming it waterfall rather than right in it. Again, mindfulness. The Buddha in his main treatise on mindfulness, his main uh, sutta, his main teaching on how to practice mindfulness, which is called the Satipatthana Sutta, or the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. The four foundations are awareness of body, all different aspects of body, awareness of pleasant and unpleasant and neutral in each experience. We experience things as pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, and we become aware of that. We are, um, again, less taking things personally and have a little bit more space or control, less reactive. So awareness of body is the first foundation of mindfulness. Awareness of feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral is the second foundation of mindfulness. The third foundation of mindfulness is what he called uh, mindful of mind. Well, it's chitta, and chitta we translate it as mind, but it really means mind and heart. In uh, Buddhist dogma, the mind and heart are understood to be one thing, deeply interconnected. So the foundation, the third foundation of mindfulness is mindful of mind or mind-heart, meaning thoughts and emotions. And the teaching is so short that I want to read it to you. Some of the other ones are much longer. By the way, the fourth foundation is uh, mindfulness of dharmas, which are teachings that help us understand what's happening here give us kind of give us a better understanding like um, the hindrances and the enlightenment factors and the four noble truths and things like that quite wonderful but for the purposes of this time tonight i want to bring us to the third foundation of mindfulness um, mindfulness of mind heart and then i'll read it to you and then um, this translation comes from bhikkhu analio um, a very beloved Theravadan Buddhist scholar. Bhikkhu is a word that means practitioner and it's all of us. <laughs> Bhikkhu. Bhikkhu means practitioner, that's all of us. Bhikkhu. How does one remain established in the observation of the mind? When their mind is desiring, the practitioner is aware. My mind is desiring. When their mind is not desiring, they're aware. 
my mind is not desiring. They're the aware in the same way concerning a hating mind, a confused mind, a collected mind, a dispersed mind, an expansive mind, a narrow mind, a highest mind, and a concentrated and liberated mind. So I'm just going to pause and say what's so cool about that is he's saying, you know what's going on. And in the knowing, there's no reactivity. There's no shaming or blaming. There's no taking pride or credit. It's just like, this is what's happening right now in my mind. I'm like, hecka judging that person over there. And you know it, but you don't have the shame of like, oh my God, my mind and it's judging. What am I going to do? You know, blah, 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 blah. It's just, you know, you know, resenting mind is a resin. It's the, what mindfulness is, is the ability to know what's happening without judging it. Or, you know, so, and, and because back in those days, there wasn't a separation between mind and heart. And we still now in, in, you know, Western Buddhist culture, we're, we talk about them as one also because they they're so deeply interconnected um however we do have the understanding and the language about emotion that wasn't used back then 2600 years ago and so when the buddha talks about knowing that you have a desiring mind you know not only that the mind has gone into craving about something but you also know what's happening in the heart, in the body, uh, in response to that, or a hating mind. No, oh yeah, there's the, there's the mind doing its thing, and there's there's what's happening, in the body. And that's really helpful when mindfulness, when you're there and you're having the direct experience yourself. You. Nobody's telling you this. Nobody's like, you've gotten the guidance, you know to do this, and then you're in there in a mindful moment yourself, and you see for yourself that a meta thought, a loving kindness thought, feels peaceful on the system. Then you have your own direct experience of what's wholesome. And similarly with what, what the Buddha called unwholesome thoughts, simply meaning that they hurt, you have a, you know, say a habituated angry thought, you know, and you're mindful enough, you're tuned in enough to feel how that feels in the system. It, it doesn't feel good. And with that direct experience from, from mindfully, just non-judgmentally, mindfully being aware of what's going on, the mind naturally wants more and more to let go of the unskillful thoughts and cultivate the skillful ones. And it knows which are which. Not because anybody told you so, because you saw it yourself. So that's the Buddha is saying. How do we stay established in the observation of the mind? Just by seeing it, naming it non-judgmentally, and so much insight. The translation for the word vipassana, which is the tradition that we are here in this community, practicing here together, the translation is insight. And that's what we get. That's one of them, like just seeing for ourselves. So then just the rest of this teaching on the third foundation this is how the practitioner remains established in the observation of the mind. Observation of the mind from within or without, or both from within and without, remains established, the practitioner remains established in the observation of the process of coming to be in the mind, in the process of dissolution or both, or simply mindful of the fact there is mind here, thought, emotion. There is mind here until understanding and full awareness come about. They remain established in the observation, free, not caught in any worldly consideration. And that's the end of that te teaching.
So just again, uh, my interpretation, this is how we do it. He's saying this is how the practitioner remains established from within or for without. That means we are dealing with our own systems and one, the very moment you have some clarity about your own mind, it can give so much more spaciousness to other people's minds. It's amazing how that is. Like, if you can see dispassionately and with compassion what your mind is doing and how that's impacting your emotions or vice versa, then he's saying from within and from without, we can begin to feel it and see it around us too. And there's just so much less um, blame and so much more spaciousness for other people. They remain in the observation of the process of coming to be and dissolution or both coming to be and dissolution, meaning Another wonderful, repeated, incredibly helpful, freeing insight is to really have the mind understand impermanence. It comes and it goes. Whatever it is, it comes and it goes. That seems so obvious, but to our human minds, we tend to think whatever's happening right now is how it's always going to be. So if you're suffering, see if this rings true for you. I'll speak in, the, in my own, for myself. When I am suffering, there is a fear that I will be suffering for the rest of my life, or I'll be suffering for a long time, or this terrible thing will never go away. And when I am feeling, you know, things are easy and I'm noticing I'm grateful and I'm feeling blessed. There can be like, I'm on the top of the world looking down on creation. And you know, I'm never going to change. I've made it, you know, and that's not true either. You know, everything is impermanent. And when mind can see that with thinking, with the thinking process, it can relax. It doesn't get so wigged out by the negativity and it doesn't get so arrogant around the positivity. It just is like, yeah, things come and go. Okay. That's the equanimity part of our practice. So with this mindfully noting what's going on, we see impermanence. Or, he, and then the Buddha makes it even simpler. He says, or mindful of the fact there's mind here, there's thought, there's feeling. Just naming it, just naming it, just knowing it's there. It's what um, teacher Ruth King calls seeing the mind rather than being the mind. When we see the mind rather than feel we are the mind. Oh my gosh, it's just, it's just, there's so many more options. So awareness, cultivating our mindfulness practice, and then what can help that too, and what we did just a tiny bit of in the, tonight's practice um, in the first half hour, and some of you undoubtedly already have this practice, but it can also quite a lot help to note. And the Buddha is basically teaching noting here of thinking. When mind is desiring, the practitioner is aware mind is desiring. So that's like, I can name, oh, craving, craving. You know, like I, you know, I, I sat up with sitting retreat recently and once in a while, and not, not unusual for me, at close to lunchtime, I'll be thinking about what they might be serving for lunch. Ah, oh, craving thought, craving wanting, you know. So noting or naming, just thinking itself can be helpful, or um, going to the specific, oh, planning, 
you know, and some of us have a minds that love to plan and that's okay. It's helpful to know that. And then you can decide when you want to plug into the planning and really use it and it's going to help you or to say, oh, planning, you know, actually let me, you know, go ahead and pay attention to something else because my mind is just kind of compulsively planning right now, you know, remembering, fantasizing, imagining. When I was also recently, when I was on retreat, I discovered, and I really was kind of a discovery of a habit that I had established prior to retreat. I discovered that my mind spends a lot of time on my family of origin. And at first that was irritating. And then I remembered Eve, don't be irritated. It's just gosses and conditions and the mind is just doing its thing. So I just began to name it family drama station. And then it would just come through family drama station. Okay. Hi, you know, I'm going to return to the breath now, you know, so naming can be, can be really helpful noting. Um, so that's the first sort of thing, our mindfulness practice and perhaps naming or noting as is taught in the Satipatthana Sutta and particularly the third foundation of mindfulness as it relates to thoughts. Another thing that is really helpful to know about thoughts is just because you think them does not mean that they're true. And this is taught repeatedly by all, all, all sorts of different teachers. Tara Brock has this teaching she uses a lot where she encourages you to, uh, as you notice thoughts come that are gripping you in some way that's uh, difficult, to use the phrase real but not true. And, you know, not, not to lie to ourselves at all. But just, there are a lot of things that the mind will present as a fact when it doesn't really know. Spiritual teacher Byron Katie says that the mind is sort of like a child asking questions, a worried child asking questions. It's just that it doesn't know how to express the question mark. So instead of saying, will we be able to pay the rent next month? It says, we won't be able to pay the rent next month. <laughs> and so it can help to just look at thoughts and, and, and just question their veracity. This feels real, but is it true? I have a student who, um, one of her questions for herself that she's found really helpful when there's a thought kind of gripping her like that is to ask herself the question, is this fear? Or is this the truth? And then there's an answer. She says, most of the time it's fear. Sometimes it might be true, but most of the time it's, it's fear about something potentially happening. And when we see that our mind is doing that, there's an immediate unhooking. It doesn't mean that the, you know, we're instantly in peace, but because the body is slower than the mind, but the thought isn't going to be obsessively running anymore if we've turned our awareness around to it and asked, is this true? Deepa Ma, wonderful awakened woman um, who she actually died probably 30 or 40 years ago, but she was a significant teacher to our teachers, Jack Cornfield, Joseph Goldstein, James. Sharon Salzberg, um, she often invited her students to ask of, of limiting thoughts, are you sure? Who says? Or a thought of, I can't do this, you know, I'll never make it, it's too hard. Ask, why, why not? So gently kind of bringing in a compassionate voice in response to these kind of fearful thoughts, the default mode network pumps out.
psychologist Shannon Kolakowski, rather than accept your thought as the ultimate truth, you recognize that thoughts will come and go, but you don't have to believe them or act on them. You become an observer. I'm back to the original point. point. So, our, you know, our faithful old fantastic mindfulness practice, and then specifically noting and naming thoughts. You know, if it works for you, questioning the veracity of thoughts, is this true? Okay, and then another thing the Buddha taught for working with difficult thoughts um, is actually replacing an unhelpful thought, anything that leads to harm, deliberately replacing it. This is the quote from the Buddha, one of the quotes from the Buddha on this, like a skilled carpenter who removes a coarse peg by knocking it out with a fine one, so a person removes a pain-producing thought by substituting a beautiful one. So an example of this is um, when I notice that I am, that the judging mind has come in, which is a natural, it's a natural function of the mind. Apparently our ancestors needed to make quick critical judgments all the time. And I'm not making that up. They did. Because, you know, you lived in your little isolated group and you had to take a quick, quick, make a quick decision, like within a nanosecond about whether somebody was safe for you or they were somebody to fight. So the tendency to judge is unfortunately hardwired in. However, we can also hardwired in is our capacity to um, tend and befriend. And we activate that through mindfulness, among other things, through attention, through paying attention, positive, non-judgmental attention. So um, when I notice my mind going into judging mode of myself or others, I've learned, I've taught myself, and you can do the same. As soon as I notice it, I replace it with a loving kindness phrase. I know that a negative judgment thought towards another person or towards myself doesn't serve me. It doesn't serve me to reinforce my resentment. I know, you know, it's fine if there's some discernment and sometimes there isn't a negative judgment. Like maybe I really do need to vacuum more often or maybe that other person really does need to, whatever I think, you know, whatever I'm, um, maybe they, you know, really do need to go when the light turns green. <laughs> um, so there can be discernment in negative judging. Um, but still, like, it's possible to discern without the hate involved, you know, without the resentment, and the dislike. So that's what we're working with. So going from the negative judgment to may you be safe, may you be peaceful, may you be healthy, may you be at ease. Feels so good to my system. It feels so much better than staying in resentment. So that's an, an example of what the Buddha said, like a skilled carpenter removes a coarse peg by knocking it out with a fine one. So a person removes a pain producing thought by substituting a beautiful one. And again, this isn't about lying to ourselves. It's about working with compulsive negative reactivity that isn't serving anyone. William James said, the greatest weapon against stress is our ability to choose one thought over another. So I'm just gonna give you an example of that and then close my talk for now. This is from, this is a quote from Buddhist teacher Martine Batchelor. If you have a difficult thought, you can replace it by thinking a positive thought or considering a positive quality, such as friendliness or compassion. Turn the attention that wants to go to the difficult thought into a thought about friendliness and bring a sense of friendliness to your experience 
in order to change the tone of the difficult thought. To give an ordinary example, you're waiting for somebody and at nine o'clock they're not there. Your thoughts might start to sound like this. Okay, 10 past nine, what's going on? 9.20, they don't love me. 9.30, nobody loves me. 9.40, I hate the world. Suddenly the narrative switches. They're not arriving on time because they're rude and inconsiderate. Instead of continuing down this path of negative thoughts, the Buddha suggests that you incorporate some flexibility into your stream of consciousness. Simply open up to a different reason why the person might be late. Maybe they're in a hurry to go somewhere else or something, have, something happened that's out of their control that prevented them from arriving on time. If you can, amplify this more positive thought even more. Maybe something wonderful happened to your friend and that's why they're running late. Or maybe something terrible happened and you need to offer them compassion. The Buddha is basically saying, don't jump to conclusions. You don't know why your friend is late. So that's what I have to offer tonight. Working with thoughts, disidentifying from them with our mindfulness practice and our noting practice looking at whether or not they're true as a way to diffuse and also the opportunity to replace thoughts and what requires any of these wise efforts is mindfulness we need to know we need to be aware we need to step out of the movie theater and know that we are thinking and then we can choose these skillful responses so yay for mindfulness <laughs> so um that's it from me and we have a few minutes i wonder if um anyone has any questions comments thoughts i could ask a question where's oliver Oh, he's, um, he's right here. Here he is. Yeah. <laughs> That's so cute. Disidentified from his thoughts. So now he's sleepy. <laughs> <laughs> um, that was a great talk and it's such an important topic. I mean, it's just, wow. And it can be really hard to do. Um, it's really timely for me because I, I lead a, I'm a therapist for children and I lead a little teen group of 13 and 14 year olds or 13 to 15. And we had had this topic, one of them, she's 14. She, I try to do like a three minute mindfulness with them at the beginning. And she's always like tapping her fingers or looking around. She just can't, you know, do it. Anyway, uh, afterwards, we were talking about it and about her depression, and she really identifies with being depressed. Yeah. I was trying to say, you know, it's a feeling you could like look at it like that's why we do mindfulness of like, okay, I'm having this feeling, but yeah. it, it doesn't last forever. But she was saying, no, I am depressed. Like she's really identified with it. Yeah. Um, the thought and the feeling, I think. Yeah. Um, and I was struggling with trying to how to get through to her to you know, to that disidentifying that, like being able to sort of step back and look at it. Yeah. And, and I don't know, I just wondered if you had any thoughts. Yeah. Well, what, have you had a similar experience, like in your moments of, of clarity, especially working with young people like this, have you had an experience where you were able to like transmit um, mindfulness to kids? um not not really i haven't had a lot of experience with it with, mm -hmm. with this so yeah I, yeah i mean honestly i don't know that they're that much different than adults i mean I think lots of people struggle with this yeah definitely yeah. yeah and and there's a lot of there's a lot of research and work now on 
uh, and just curriculum on communicating mindfulness to people at different developmental stages, including teens. And so, um, and you and I can do this offline, but but um, I would put a little time into just finding something like that because they need to find, like one of the things I love about the Buddha is he was always say, find the easiest way in, start where it's easy. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if I'm trying to communicate to somebody and, you know, they're not, it's not landing and that does happen, you know, a lot, then, then the, the trick is to find out where it does land. And I know for teens, there are certain strategies that work, but I'm not sure what they are because that's not my yeah. field of expertise. But I think it's a really beautiful what you're doing. Also, the other thing is to have faith in this seed planting when we offer something sometimes it doesn't it doesn't seem like it's anything's happening it just looks like the same fallow field as before but something could be happening that just needs some time to gestate so that might be happening too okay well maybe i'll talk to you more offline yeah great great thank you nathan Hi, Eve. Thank you. And actually, Wendy, when you had, uh, were asking, um, it brought to mind. I hope I can. We can have like a. I can speak directly to Wendy if that's okay. Just to, um, is, that, is that okay with you, Wendy? Yeah, absolutely. Just okay. saying because um, mm -hmm. I mentor a um, young first generation college student for many years, and he start he we started our our mentorship relationship when he was a teen and had gone through quite a few things and um, the format was a little bit different. It was more one-on-one, -on -one, but I think it took quite a few months for him to just really open up and demonstrating that I was there for him and that we, I expected him to, you know, maintain certain, like a certain schedule where we met. And over time, as he started to see that I was coming every week and just building this relationship and this trust little by little, even talking about things that he liked, like sports and video games, yeah. started to like have this dialogue. And it was very, it was a long, long thread to pull, but eventually we start to do more mindfulness things when I, when he encountered situations in his personal life. So um, just if that's helpful at all, I just offer that to you. Thank you. Uh, and then Eva, I had, a, I had a question for you, if that's, yeah. okay, I joined a little bit late, so I, I apologize, but I wanted to ask if um, you, you said that we, if it's, if it's possible or easy that we can switch our minds to something that's a more pleasant thought. Yeah. I was wondering if, for me, I guess a thought is that, does that, me, how do I make sure I'm not like avoiding yeah, that's to, an important yeah. thought. That's an important question. Um, and I think we each need to discern that. But ultimately, um, using that replacement technique as a form of bypass does not feel good. We sense that. It doesn't feel good. We, we don't want to be out of integrity or bypass anything that needs to be faced or dealt with. Um, in fact, with the emotional part of the heart-mind continuum, typically what needs to be done is it needs to be felt in what, you know, sometimes that means titrating in and out or, you know, if it's really intense, taking a break, but coming back to it. Um, so definitely don't want to be in any kind of denial or avoidance. It's when we have discerned that a thought is habitual and no longer serving us so it's your your question's really important because it's a really important qualifying thing for example um you know sometimes in childhood it may may have made a lot of sense to come to the conclusion that i'm not good enough because if i were to come to the conclusion that the adults around me were neglecting me that would be too much for my system to handle. So I just come to the conclusion that I'm not good enough. And that gets habituated in the 
repetitive default mode network and then here I am 30 years later with I'm not good enough kind of in the driver's seat a lot. That would be a case where, you know, I have the clarity that this repeated negative thinking is not serving me and it's no longer, it's, it's, it's not true. It's no longer useful or true. It's no, it's serving no useful function, but it's in there creating havoc. And so those are the kinds of things that's in kind of an intense example, but it could be something like as little as just like I was saying before, just a habitual negative judging of somebody walking by because of the coat they're wearing. And we can clearly discern this is in, in no way serving anybody and is in fact bringing a little extra negativity to my day. So when we see that a thought has some momentum but is serving no useful purpose, then it's really good and smart to, to replace it with something beautiful. One more example from my own life. When I get, when I go to the dentist, I have, you know, aversion and fear toward all the activity in my mouth, you know, the, the numbing ouch needle and the, and the vibrating of the, I hate it. And just laying there in aversion serves no one. But if I bring in some loving kindness phrases, then there's this kind of calming, compassionate, loving kind of repetitive phrase going on through the whole ordeal that helps me feel more at ease. So definitely, you know, taking a look at the thoughts and seeing which ones are holding some wisdom that needs to be acknowledged and which ones are those kind of just habitual, non-useful negative thoughts. Thank you for that. Okay, we, we need to close. Um, thank you so much for being here. Really nice to spend time with you. Wishing you a good week. May the merit of our practice be for the benefit of all beings, including ourselves. All right, have a good week. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Eve. That was great. Thank you, Eve. Thank you. Wonderful talk. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.